if we're talking startups and products, you can build a whole business on on a feature that another company already has that is like so darn buried, right? Like like Calendly, Google Calendar actually has that feature. Welcome to a brand new Social Convos episode. It's uh, time for a brand new episode, Diego. And uh, we have our first comment already. Gregory was getting worried. Where are you guys? Well, we're right here, right on time at 9 o'clock. And yes, Gregory, I gave Diego a scare today for making him think that I wouldn't show up for today's episode. But I'm really excited about today's guest. So I wouldn't miss it for the world. Today is going to be an exciting one. Uh, we have a, our guest is currently based in Chicago. And as you've seen in the announcement, we have Peck Pongpet, the founder and uh, CEO of Impeccable, a UX, US design firm uh, based in the US. And they serve clients globally. And I got to say, when I checked it out, I was blown away by the portfolio, the work they've done. If you ask me now, if I knew beforehand, what everything was that Peck has done. I would have been intimidated to ask him, but I, I'm glad it happened the other way around. Uh, we'll go into that a bit. But yeah, he also has two podcasts. So just like us, he hosts his own podcast, the What is UX podcast and a Founders with Peck podcast. So if you guys get a chance uh, after this episode, also check those out. And fun fact, I think I'm going to ask him to... Tell us more about this himself, but I'm, I'm going to bring Peck up right now. Hey, Peck, welcome to Social Convos. Hey, thank you. Nice to meet you, Greg. Thanks for hopping on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And quickly, the first time I met Peck was in, in a Zoom call and we were all introducing ourselves. And this is the funnest fact I've heard anyone just, you know, casually say, yeah, I, I used to, you know, you know Mortal Kombat, Sub-Zero, the motion capture. Yeah, I used to do, do that. So, Peck, can you tell us a bit more about that on your history with Mortal Kombat and motion capture and in the DC universe as well? Yeah, so there's a video game that was big in the early 90s called Mortal Kombat. It started out as an arcade game. And over the years, it's, I don't know how many years it's been, but it's been, what, at least two decades since uh, Mortal Kombat's been around. And there's recently a, a movie, Mortal Kombat movie, but I've been involved in doing the, was involved in doing the martial arts moves for Mortal Kombat, starting with Mortal Kombat 5 till about Mortal Kombat 10 for 10 years. They, they did about a game every two years. You know, I'm sort of older now and I don't do that anymore, but yeah, I did that for 10 years so Mortal Kombat it was like the first game was I think 2000 2001 I want to say yeah 2001 to 2011 right so Mortal Kombat Deadly Alliance Mortal Kombat Shaolin Monks Armageddon I forget yeah there's a there's MK versus DC Universe oh Shaolin Monks and maybe a Deception I forgot Deception and then and then the reboot called Mortal Kombat 
That's quite a lot. Yeah, I think Mortal Kombat, if you ask anyone around our, our generation, they, they grew up with Mortal Kombat. I myself have played it. I have a few friends who, you know, so it's kind of really cool to have someone here behind who was behind the scenes and, and maybe shed some lights how that that was. Well, the cooler, the cooler fact, like, you know, the, the games that I'm in are, were not as famous as the original games, right? Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3, right? Mortal Kombat 2 is probably in the arcades is one of the best, you know, games in, in 3. The, the more, more cool fact is some of my instructors were in those games. So, like, Johnny Cage was my instructor, you know, the, the, the guy who played is a, a real martial artist called, named Danny Pacina. And then the guy who played Kung Lao was also a real martial artist who they both uh, come from the same lineage of martial arts and same martial arts instructor. But he also has his own school and his name is, is Tony Marquez. And both of them, I, I studied, actually, I actually studied with both of them. So I know knew the, those people who played those characters. And Tony Marquez actually also played uh, Ninja, uh, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle in, in one of the movies, or maybe two of the movies, two and three. Okay, so so our audience our audience is fishing already. So there are a couple of questions. Of course, a shout out from Gregory once again. But he wants to know what's your martial arts background, and also is there any significance of the Mario poster behind you? The the style that I did was it's called wushu, which is a Chinese martial arts. I grew up watching a lot of kung fu movies and kung fu like soap opera, Chinese soap opera, in in Thailand where I grew up. And of course, I saw Jet Li, Jackie Chan, and I was very, you know, I always wanted to study martial arts, but being of very strict Asian parents, you know, they're just like, just study, just don't do anything else, just study, <laughs> just get good grades and, and follow that very narrow path. So, I, so it's always something in the back of my mind, but not something my parents uh, encouraged or, or were going to support. How I started was when I graduated college with an engineering degree, got my job, my first paycheck, I started looking for a, a Kung Fu school <laughs> near my house. And as luck would have it, Daniel Pacina, who played Johnny Cage in the original Mortal Kombat video games, was teaching out of a school that happened to be close to where I live. And yeah, I just happened to pick a school that was close because so that I could go because of traffic and convenience. If I didn't, you know, if it was far away, then I probably wouldn't go. So I got very lucky to, to study there. Uh, the significance of Mario, it's not a poster. It's actually a, an art piece made out of wooden blocks. And it's supposed to be a, a sound diffuser. So when you have, uh, say, a podcast or something, they have those really ugly foam diffusers that I bought. And I was like, oh, this is so ugly. I would never put this up. Uh, and then I've heard about these wooden blocks that are, you know, I found them on Etsy that were diff sound diffusers. And some of them are just bland, boring blocks. And some of them have like some paint on them. And, you know, I, I, I was like, I looked at it and I'm like, yeah, this is kind of cool, but not what I want. And then I was like, oh, this is like, they're like pixels. It could be like pixel art. So I actually commissioned someone on Etsy to make this special for me. That's really cool. We should get some. That's man. cool. <laughs> I have no sound diffusers. I have this new white walls. Yeah, if you just have like straight, like flat walls, right, without anything kind of breaking the sound. I've like I've listened to my own podcast, and it, I can tell that it sounds like tinny or echoey. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've I've noticed that a few times as well. So it, it was kind of like more of a you know right place, right time for you. That's how you got kind of roped into the scene, from what I'm understanding. Yeah, well, I got lucky to be met up with good coaches. I mean, like the Mortal Kombat thing, 
I mean, it is cool to be part of video game history, but my passion for martial arts was, you know, because of like the Jet Li's, you know, Jackie Chan's of the world. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed the Mortal Kombat piece, although, you know, it was very small. You know, I studied it for over 10 years. The, the, the motion capture work didn't take a lot of time. So every year it would only take up a few days, you know, whenever we did it. You know, they try to cram it in and I, I go there and it was, you know, they have a, a huge move list. They have like the loose plot for the cinematic trailer intro, like who fights who and who's supposed to win. And then we martial artists figure out the details of the fight. But it's really only a few days a year versus, you know, the training competition stuff is that that was a good chunk of my life after work. Quick transition to business. How hard was it for you to come up with a name for your company? <laughs> was it easy or was it actually more difficult than that we would have to imagine? You know, uh, I had a really lame name for the original company name, and which I won't even share because I'm so embarrassed. But the impeccable one is somewhat an early client came came up with for me. She She had an idea and she brought it up and I was like, Wow, that's a lot of pressure. Impeccable, you know, that that means flawless, right? Like that's like that's aiming super high and that's that's a lot of pressure to put and then plus it's got my name in it and that's that's kind of vain. So I didn't really like it at first, but then I would ask I would I test it out. I asked all the other clients. I said, "Hey, I'm thinking about changing the name of the company. So you know the name of the company. How how about this new one, Impeccable?" I was like, "Oh, Impeccable, so much better, so much better." Like uh, and after hearing that many times, I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> I, get, I just gave in and leaned in. But it is it is a good name, and I, I even people who know me know that I like puns, so this is a great pun. No, yeah, it, it, it's amazing, <laughs> and it it's like it it rolls so easily, and it's quite memorable. And the, the coincidence that it really fits with you with your name that's even better. <laughs> And I love funds as well. But yeah, you, you mentioned, you know, grew up in Thailand, had the traditional upbringing. We've heard this time and time again, you know, traditional upbringing do the engineering, econ economics, and the basic doctor. Doctor, lawyer. <laughs> doctor, lawyer. Yeah, we, we've heard this time and time again. But you ended up in one of the, yeah, the, the, the most creative spaces in tech especially so how would you make that finally make the transition from the traditional trajectory to having a serious hobby in motion capture and then starting your design ux ui, UI business i discovered my passion I, I at some point uh maybe like junior high or high school my my i i got to like learn about computers and uh, we we didn't my first computer of course i think was in interaction was at school but then you know i would after school i would go to my dad's office and you know i i got i borrowed you know i had copies of of games from friends so like prince of persia like the old prince of persia and and all these other old games i would play them and had a lot of fun and you know i, I discovered that i like computers or at least playing computer games <laughs> that's not saying that 
I didn't really think too much about it. Like, oh, I like playing computer games, therefore I must like computers. But I, I, I would also tinker with uh, the computers, and, you know, and learn basic commands and learn DOS. That was in the age of DOS. I learned programs and how to execute programs, copy programs, and learn basic DOS stuff. I enjoyed it. I, I, I tinkered with enough of it that I went and uh, we, we also had an introductory computer uh, programming course in, in, in high school, which I enjoyed. So... After that, I decided that I really wanted to study, you know, computers. I didn't realize I went into computer engineering, which is sort of like computer hardware plus computer software. I actually didn't like the hardware part, part at all. I don't like circuits and, you know, capacitors and, and circuit diagrams and, and all third about dynamics and all that stuff didn't interest me at all. Like, I think if I could do it back over again, I'd probably just be a pure computer science pro major and just study software because hardware had no interest for me but actually my yeah yeah but my my parents really did want me or at least my father didn't did want me to be a doctor and uh, at the time in thailand i don't know if it's kind of still true now but in thailand if you want to go into medicine they have this thing where you have to be an intern you know like uh, be sort of an apprentice or intern and and try it out before dedicating your life you know into this field when you apply, they, they assign you to a random hospital. Uh, so when I was going into medicine, I had to go and I was assigned this sort of like on the edge of the of Bangkok, like not, like not like a downtown in the city hospital. So it was kind of like more slightly rural. And I, I worked in the emergency room. And I can tell you, I lasted two days. <laughs> like... One of the first day, uh, a guy came with an infection the size of a tennis ball and they had to like cut it open and it smelled up the whole room and it just shot up in pus, you know, and then another day or maybe it was the same day, but a guy, he had a bullet wound, but it, he didn't, he, he didn't come right away. He, he had gotten shot in the leg and it was infected. It had been either several days or whatnot, but it also, he didn't report it right away. So he came in because it was infected and we had to deal with that as well. So after days of experiences like that, I, I went back to dad and I said, look, medicine is just not for me. I, I like, there was just like too much blood and, you know, blood and smell and, and stuff like that. I was like, I, I can't do this. My, my cousin had a very different experience. So when he did the same thing, he was assigned to like pediatrics. So he, he got to like coddle babies for his internship. So of, of course he went into medicine and now he's a great doctor. But my experience was so traumatic. Like, yeah, it totally scared me off. So as I told dad, like, look, medicine, I just can't do it. And like, I'm just gonna study computer engineering. So, so that's what happened. <laughs> there was no sending me back to that. <laughs> the assignment uh, to the, the hospitals was like random for everyone who like applied. Yeah, yeah, you don't get that's, to choose. That's ridiculous, yeah. wow. So it's basically a lottery ticket, like, okay, you either have a great experience or a horrible experience. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and I didn't pass the test. So so how I got into that, yeah, that's that's basically how I got into the field of engineering. And then again, you know, I always grew up watching Kung Fu movies, so I, I always wanted to, you know, do, do martial arts at some point, but I, I didn't get the support of my parents. So when I finally could, get it, you know, with my own money, I, I did. Yeah. So that's kind of the story of how I get into tech through school and then how I got into Kung Fu or Wushu. Yeah. 
But you basically grew up like your whole childhood in, in Thailand, basically, and did uh, your school there. No, no, not entirely, but we can get into that. So well, yeah, when, when was the move to the U.S. actually? And like, and you decided, you know, to, to stay in the U.S., not go back and develop yourself and your business and basically your career. So, so my parents are, were Thai diplomats. So they, we grew up traveling around the world. So both my, both my mom was a diplomat. My father was a diplomat when, in fact, when they had me, they were still also both working. And I, I grew up the first few years just uh, with my mom in Malaysia. So we, we ended up in Malaysia, just my mom and I, and then my, my dad at the time was in as a diplomat, Thai diplomat in Beijing. And actually that's how I got my name Peck. So like the old name Beijing is Peking. So P-E-K is the international airport code. So yeah, that's, that's what Peck comes from. But yeah, at some point, so, so, you know, both, both my parents traveled for, for work and we kind of, as kids, you know, grew up traveling like like diplomat kids or military kids but my dad always put us in both my sister and I in like American schools or international schools so it was I, I didn't really grow up like with a very Thai mindset so it was always like you know at some point I was going to go to the U.S. for for college and yeah <laughs> like I'm not very Thai I guess in that sense so yeah and then uh, as luck would have it my my father around the time I became like just about graduating high school, my, my father got assigned to to the U.S., to Chicago as a, as consul general. So he, he got to come move to Chicago and, and brought us with along with. And that was right at the time when I started college. So I started college. So I applied to a few universities and I, I got into the University of Illinois, which is in Chicago. And my sister is still in high school. And that's how we, we ended up in the in Chicago. And then, you know, fast forward a few years, I am after about a decade or so in working in tech in Chicago, I decided to move to the Bay Area, San Francisco, Bay Area, Silicon Valley, because that's where my heart is, is like tech startups. And, you know, I, I love reading about that. And, you know, the tech scene in Chicago in the early 2000s was pretty lame. So <laughs> we, you know, other, other than a few, you know, companies. So I decided to move there and then that's how Impeccable started. Um, cool. We, we got some quick comments here, like uh, blood, from Anil, blood in games is different. So that, that doesn't bother you at all, <laughs> yeah, especially in Mortal Kombat, because the gore in Mortal Kombat. I, you know, the funny thing is I, I liked fighting games, and but I didn't really like the game Mortal Kombat as much. Yeah, yeah I felt like it was like, needlessly violent but i did play games like you know i liked one of my favorite games was virtual fighter 2 2 was one of the best tekken virtual fighter and tekken and soul caliber were my go-to fighting games yeah uh, I, I i i've had my, yeah i've had my share of tekken <laughs> and i i just quickly thought of this so quick quick fun fact here since anil mentioned this comment in a way because you used to work for accenture as well right yeah. Uh, in, in your early days. So we had Anil here a few months ago and that's where he started as well. It, it, they weren't called Accenture, but he started in the Netherlands. So in a way, you guys were maybe colleagues. Yeah, I was uh, at Accenture in Chicago for almost five years. Yeah, it's my second or third job. But th that doesn't really explain yet. Or So tech, more engineering, computer science background, because UI UX is really more visual. So 
that transition from the the code tech software to the more front end visual side when did that happen when because the, the products that you guys made were like like visually like wow right after college i graduated as software engineer so the first years were pure software engineering so writing code i think around for about seven years i was mostly a software engineer software developer with like especially a microsoft one so i had all these microsoft technology certifications so like mc microsoft solution developer microsoft dba all that stuff i was very into the microsoft enterprise world but around yeah around towards the end of that i think you know when steve jobs came back to apple and then you saw this like surge of well, well-designed consumer software and then like the Facebooks and the Googles and the PayPals and the Ebays kind of started coming up and uh, software like was good, right? Like had a great user interface, it was well-designed, it was usable. I decided, you know, I at some point everybody writes good code and it's like diminishing returns. like. Like that's table stakes, right? Where you can have a, a differentiator, I, in, I, at least in the consumer space, right? Or prosumer, good software is not just good code. It's, it's also well-designed. And I really appreciated that. And I was like, oh, that's where I want to be. You know, I want to make, I really enjoyed using good software. I want to be part of that side, that part of that camp. So I started studying self-teaching software design and eventually became pretty decent at it. But that's how it started, was seeing all that proliferation of internet consumer software, you know, Apple's kind of going, coming into the field with Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive, you know, and, and later on the iPhone. Yeah, that's, that's really what got me into software design, UX design. Ah, thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, I, I said uh, that's really cool, and that quickly brings me to the next question, because you are inspired by you know Steve Jobs, the UI, that tech internet space. So, how much do you think does the the environment like Silicon Valley, San Francisco, the Bay Area, that shape someone or help shape you? If if you look back from growing up in Thailand, moving to Chicago, and then to being exposed in that environment do you think it would have ended up a different way if you weren't like in that environment at that time yeah i think my my you know my choice in career would have been very different i think so yeah i think me for me had i not gone to chicago and and chicago's proximity so while i was in college so at u of i you know the, the other campus u of i you know this was like the days of Netscape or Mosaic, the, the the first browser, Mosaic, and then right after that, Netscape. Like 95, around midnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was all happening while I was in college taking computer classes. Like all of a sudden, hey, we have this thing called a, a web browser, Mosaic, you know, from, from the other campus, U of I, the other campus. Check it out. We download it, use it. Like this is cool. And then a couple months later, like Mosaic is no longer cool. And there's this thing, Netscape. And we're using that and then we're using that to browse Yahoo and we're using that to browse all of a sudden, you know, there's like Hotmail, there's like, you know, Google and, and stuff like that all, all while we're in, in college and all that was happening. I don't, you know, I, if you were not as close to it while it was happening, you might not have been exposed to it for many other years, right? So I think that's, 
that that proximity helped me kind of be be exposed to it at an early time when all those things were happening. You know, recounting you know somebody else's interview that I interviewed. You know, she she was YouTube's first designer. She went to U of I, the other campus where she had met Steve Chen and Chad Hurley, the founders of YouTube. You know, they, they were working on it as a side project, as an evening project. You know, as, as a cool thing. So being being close to to all those things helped me get exposed to it early on, which I don't think would have happened had I stayed in Thailand, you know, and, and also like, you know, even now, right? Like if you look at the startups in Thailand or, you know, any other place, it's very different, right? Like they're, they're for example, I think in Thailand, startups tend to be more, there's like tourism tech or, you know, there's agri-tech, agricultural technology. Uh, there's sure there's like stuff here and there but you know also like probably very similar to Suriname right the scale is very different because the population is different you know it's much smaller right you know if you have you know even if you like they we they, there's like a Yelp clone in in Thailand right and and even if you have 50% of the population using it that's still not not a that big a number right like i don't know i don't remember the population in Thailand but i do know that you know like that, that app probably has like 50%, but 50% is still a pretty small number compared to like an app that's popular in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. So scales I, I are think, very different. I think in the U.S., China, for instance, as well. But I think our population is even much smaller than Thailand. So just imagine. Yeah. So I, I quickly checked it out. The population of Thailand is about 70 million and we aren't even near a million well like yeah yeah like there's a, a yelp clone kind of called wong nai which is it means inner circle but like i think there there's like 30 million users right like 30 million users is is decent but you know when when you're talking about facebook scale instagram scale whatsapp scale we're, we're talking about you know 100 million users or billion users and yeah Okay, I do have a couple of quick fire questions before we head off to the more serious stuff. The first question I have to ask, what was your first personal email address? First, oh, personal. Well, yeah, the first email address was the school email address. First personal one was, I want to say it's either a Hotmail. It's like Pat at Hotmail. <laughs> first initial, last name at Hotmail. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I started with Hotmail as well. Yeah. I mean, technically yeah. I had yeah, an I AOL and an I, yeah, I had, technically I had an ICQ and an AOL email, but I never checked their email. I just used the AOL instant messenger, right? Like I used it for the chat and ICQ. I also used it for the chat. I didn't use their email in any way. Yeah. So are you more like a Mac or windows user? It's funny, I've come full circle. In the beginning, I was a Windows user. And then, you know, during Apple's time and when I became, you know, fully became a designer, I was a Mac user. And I, up until recently, was a Mac user for a very long time. But now, if you think about other than a few desktop apps, most of your apps are in the browser, right? And, uh, you know, I had bought, I, I, I travel for work a lot, like as a, you know, traveling businessman, traveling salesman. And I had a MacBook Pro, like 15 inch or something. And at some point I got like, man, I'm tired of lugging this thing around. It's heavy. So then I got a MacBook Air and that thing is lighter, but it's so underpowered. And then now COVID's happened and I have this MacBook Air 
and it's like this huffing and puffing thing that like gets out of breath right like the, the fan is always on blaring because it's too underpowered like to have zoom and and my work stuff on and, and all these slack and all this stuff and but I, i'm not moving anywhere right and i need a big monitor so so i switched to to a, a desktop pc with like a 49 inch monitor and i was like with a nvidia graphics card and right now that you know CPU is at 5%, you know, there's, there's nothing going on. It is, it's not even breaking a sweat. <laughs> oh, you're so confronting me right now. <laughs> I was about to call you out. Look. Yeah. Yeah. You're really confronting because I'm on a MacBook Air now. And for those who have been very sharp, have seen that I switched around and I changed browsers in the, during the show. Because one of the browser that I originally planned on using wasn't just with the internet connection, it wasn't cutting it. The feed kept disappearing. So I completely understand. The CPU but, is always like 100%, right? And the fan is like ridiculously high. Where that problem is gone. Like with the, the I got the, I, I went overboard, right? I, I, I also thought I was going to start gaming, but I really haven't at all. But I bought like a, you know, one of those NVIDIA 3090, whatever, RTX, thinking I was going to game, but I, I don't. <laughs> Somebody did point out, did you say a 49-inch monitor? Yeah, yeah. Like I have a 49-inch curved monitor. So it's it feels like three monitors. It's great. Yeah. So basically, that's also part of the extra light for the setup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, the next question would be, what would you consider the first networking website? Networking website, like... Could you define networking? Yeah, yeah. So the, the first website that you could go on, get a membership, and connect with others around the world. There was High Five before Friendster. I don't think I joined High Five. I used Friendster. Friendster and then MySpace. A funny story is, yeah, I met a girl on Friendster. She was my girlfriend for a while. And then I met my wife on MySpace. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> but they weren't dating sites, right? They were just networking and they were like friends. Yeah, the yeah, one of my old girlfriends, she was a friend of a friend. And that's how we met through Friendster, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I think in High Five was pretty big in Suriname as well. And you had Hives, which was connected to the Netherlands. So it was either one of the to those two. And I think Facebook really became popular in Suriname around late 2000s. 20, 2010, around 2010. I, I remember that. That's, that's when I got into it as well. I liked, you know, like MySpace was getting... Like people were installing crazy scripts that would just kill your browser, you know, like all these slideshows and like three MP3s playing and 10 slideshows. And it was just like slowing down your computer. And then Facebook came and it was like this clean, you know, no nonsense, just the content. And then the feed was actually useful because you didn't have to go to everybody's page to see what they updated, right? Like if you had like 10 friends, like MySpace didn't have a notion of a feed, right? So you had to go to their page to see what happened, what they wrote. Speaking of a clean space, uh, you just mentioned Facebook. What is your opinion on Facebook's latest UI and user experience? What they changed it to? Like, I, I don't have a problem with the clean cleanliness. I I think my my bigger problem is you have all these designers designing on really big monitors, and everything is huge. I ra I'd rather see more information. 
like I'm more of an information dense guy. Like I can tell when like maybe young, young designers have a problem with this. Like they'll design, you know, sometimes it's like, they, yeah, they design some stuff that's like ridiculous. Either they, they, it can go two ways. Either like when they're designing on a mobile app where they don't test on their phone, they design on a big monitor and it looks okay. And then when they put it on the phone, it looks really small because they don't really test on the phone. So that's one problem. And then the other problem is, you know, they design something that, you know, on, a, on a, another monitor is just lower resolution monitor. It's huge because it's designed on a very high res monitor. And I think part of the problem is like this, this yeah, the, the design, UX design, like I see a lot less content. Like if I were to go to Facebook right now, you know, maybe I also see one post or one and a one a quarter versus like more, I'd rather have more information density, yeah. That's a very, very interesting point. And people have pointed out, which is a reason why Reddit works as well, so well as well, that it's kind of very basic, but it it gives the people what you need. And I think like for most of our like our weekly viewers, they are very familiar with, with user interface and user experience. But but for a noob, for somebody who's who's brand new is listening or seeing this for the first time and is like, okay, but why is UI and UX, why is it important? Could you give people like a, a, a short, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't say UI and UX for dummies, but why is that so important for, for a, a website or an app when, pe when people start using it? Yeah, well, there's, I guess a good analogy is like when something is well-designed, you just enjoy using it more or it's easier to use. You know, and I'm not talking about engineering when if something doesn't work, like, hey, the video doesn't work, that's like an engineering problem. But, you know, I'll, I'll contrast like maybe like Google, Google Hangouts versus Zoom. I have actually like two cameras that I switch between. And with Zoom to change, cam you know, for both of them, sometimes they always by default pick the wrong one, but it takes like six clicks through Google to switch cameras. Whereas with Zoom, it's already a, just a drop down from the camera, the, the the video like stop cam or show cam button. There's like a, by default, there's a drop down and you just pick one and then that's it. So you drop down and you select it. So it's two clicks. Whereas with Hangouts, it's like you have to go into the dot, 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 go into the click settings, pick video, click the drop down, select, <laughs> select the right one, click OK, click close. I just named at least six clicks to get, you know, so that is a much, you know, full of friction. And it's like the, just changing that setting is so painful to me that it's like, ugh, you know, and maybe that's a conscious decision. Maybe like their data says that, hey, 99% of the people who use Hangouts only have one camera. So we're going to just bury this, right? Because 99% of the people won't have this problem. But for the people who have two cameras or more, and you know, and by default these apps pick the wrong camera, then it's a real problem. Like today, you know, we had this problem with StreamYard where by default it picked the wrong mic, and we were trying to figure out, and it was like so painful to just pick the right mic. You know, it's several clicks. But yeah, so something well designed, people enjoy using more. Something or or use or use at all, period, or don't they, you know, something that is not well designed tends not to be used or tends to be uninstalled. So, so that's kind of like maybe like the, the high level of why user experience is important. 
It's interesting. It brings me back to the, the early ages of going live where all of a sudden Periscope and Meerkat came around like these new apps. Yeah, you can go on Periscope and Meerkat and you can go live. And YouTube was like, but wait a minute, you can go live on YouTube already for such a long time. But getting through that, you had to go to a Hangout and then you had to figure out how to configure it. And then, of course, Facebook came and blew them all away because there were much more users. And on Facebook, it was just two clicks and you were done. And it, it's, it's, it's interesting from, from that perspective where we often think as innovation is like something creating something completely new. Whereas sometimes it's just like you want something that's so simple to use that anybody can can use it. So yeah, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. And then to follow up the question, like do you do you see certain websites or certain ideas that are actually really good ideas, and then when it comes out, it actually doesn't work because the UX is so terrible that people are like even if it's a great uh, solution to a problem, uh, this just doesn't work for me. Hmm. I can't think of, let me think about that, for that, that problem, that, that example. But a different, I thought you were going to ask a different type of question. But so like one, one thing thought that I had in mind was like, you, you know, you can, like if we're talking startups and products, you can build a whole business on, on a feature that another company already has that is like so darn buried, right? Like, like, like you said here, that, that was a great example. Like Calendly, Google Calendar actually has that feature. It's called events and it's like a totally different tab. But Calendly is like simplifies that to just a few clicks, right? And you just share your Calendly link and, and that's your schedule, you know, versus Google Calendar that, that one little feature is buried First of all, if you don't know it, you probably have to Google how to find that feature and how to turn that on and how to set those things. Whereas like with Calendly, it's just a few clicks. And and that's also better integratable into your website, for instance, Calendly. Yeah, yeah. Now to think, because now that you mention it, you can actually, yeah, it's really upsetting that Google always already had those features, but they bury, keep burying those features. And, and it's harder time. to use, so people, We'll still like we still use Calendly, even though that feature exists, because it's easier for someone to grab my Calendly link than you know sharing that other link and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. When when you mentioned uh, Google Events to me, I, I didn't even know of it. I looked it up, and I think they buried it even further now that you have to have the the Google Business subscription before you can actually use it. So yeah. And like, okay, never mind. Sticking to Calendly. So I, I've I've experienced that firsthand after you told me the first time. But yeah, stick. But quickly sticking to the, the UI UX for a bit. I was watching a few, you know, YouTube videos uh, a while back, and this thought came that Western, like as you said, the, the more modern Western world is very minimal. The designers are blowing things up, making it like focus on one thing, not enough information. But if you look at the Eastern side, China, Japan. It's flooded with, I, I can now read a bit of Chinese and Japanese, but it's flooded with characters. It's flooded with text. There's very little white space. So I'm not sure, you, you work with uh, Asian companies as well as, as well as US. What's the difference there, do you think, in philosophy, but also in, in experience in, in that UI, UX, that the Asian markets go more for like flooding with you a lot of text and the Western is more white space? 
Yeah, it's a it's very different design sensibilities. I, I can't I, I can't claim too much experience with Chinese and Japanese design. I, I I would say I have a very cursory knowledge, but I do understand that they they prefer less clicks and more information up front, and they prefer them have more information density. Whereas Western mindset or sensibilities prefer. You know, cleaner, more white space, cleaner design. You know, kind of simpler workflows, and that's why. Also, I would not to generalize, but you know, kind of maybe like like Eastern Asian culture, you prefer for less clicks, and they you want information all in one page that they can just see and scan. Whereas you know, Western or U.S. design sense, it's more one, it's more visual. One, it's more space and and. To kind of, they don't mind clicking more, right?、Uh, having more clicks to go through more pages, just but as long as it's clean and sort of a, a narrow, narrow workflow. I think Thai is a little different because it's it's somewhere in between. Like Thai, you know, speaking of having Thai customers in the past, we you know they do like clean design. The Thai vocabulary and Thai words tend to do you know kind of like maybe certain languages like German, like you know a simple word in English maybe translated to Thai is like several words. So the buttons are, are you know kind of like you have that problem where it's more verbose. So you know you run into those problems where you know what what would take you know one or two words or would just blow up in in Thai, but. Generally speaking, they they also prefer cleaner sensibilities. I think more though, Thai consumers are are at least kind of in e-commerce. The difference is like they're very sales driven and promo driven. So they you know so you have these gaudy like on sale now like all these in your face sales. So which you know for my Western sensibilities like it's not very clean. Right, because it's just like glaring and gaudy, like sales buttons and and graphics. Yeah. There is a quick question here from Anil on the UX, and he asks, "How will UX change now that we have more conversational interactions with tech? So, like Alexa,、um, like voice activated. How does yeah? How does UX、uh, play a role in that? In moving more? Yeah, UX has expanded. Right, I think you know in. Even throughout my career, right in the beginning, UX was mostly thought about for web, web desktop. Now we think about UX a lot. Most of the UX we think about is still web desktop now plus mobile. Or depending on which customer we're talking to, mobile might be more important. But sometimes there's also watch interfaces, and you know now now UX has expanded, right? It might be voice. Interface. So UX designers now there's more specializations. So there's more to learn. There's more to specialize because the web desktop experience is different than the mobile experience. It's different than the tablet experience. It's different than the voice experience. So so UX designers now also can or need to you know for for different companies have to work on building voice interfaces as well or like in car interfaces even. Or like large screen display interfaces or TV interfaces. So like, for example, like now you know there's a lot of smart TVs. I, I think what's happened during COVID is my consumption of YouTube has changed. Now, now that I'm home, I spend a lot more time on TV, and like I a lot, I would say a good chunk of my YouTube consumption is actually on TV now through a smart TV interface. 
So somebody had to design that, and that's different than a click web interface. So it's just more more things. You touched on a very interesting part as well, because we end up coming back to, well, YouTube is not really Google, but it still is. And YouTube has this terrible interface for making the cover photo for the YouTube channel work on a, on a television. It was like, it didn't make any, the dimensions didn't make any sense. And, but, but you, you touch upon something very interesting. And I, I want to follow up on that because I think 20 years ago, I had a discussion or yeah, 20 to 15 years ago, I had a discussion with my dad and we were discussing at the time, mobile phones were kind of still, still new. And I was having a discussion like at a certain point, the computer is going to do everything that the mobile phone does. And he was like, no, 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 it's going to be the other way around. The mobile phone is going to do whatever the computer does. And of course, he was right. At the time, I was still young. I was I just had the thought in my head. And and that's kind of the, the change where, of course, we still use the desktop. And you just told us you went full circle and why. But all of a sudden, you see that things that you would usually do on bigger devices are going on phones, which you're seeing with, of course, young children who like just take the, to the the phone of their parents and they watch YouTube and they're used to like a screen that is way too small for me. Like I'm, I'm not going to watch on this screen when I have a big screen for them. It's like, yeah, but I'm used to it. They don't even click away the ads, you know, I'm like, yeah, the ad is disturbing me because they don't even click away the ads. They just watch through it. So then my question comes and you're in into that part as well and the UX and, and UI as well. So I do want to, where do you feel we're going towards? Are we definitely going towards more the voice integrated systems? Are we going to more towards an internet of things that everything is connected in your living room? What kind of what kind of changes do you really see like and see like, okay, in, in five years time, people don't think about it yet, but this is going to be a, a pretty normal thing, which now is kind of a techie or a geeky thing. Yeah, well, I... You know, being a techie and geeking out over stuff, you know, we, I'm an enabler and of, of connecting, you know, my company is an enabler of connecting things to the internet and we worked on IOT related projects and, and I also geek out on stuff. So I, I think we're just going to see more and more connected devices. One, because we're tethered to our mobile phones for better or for worse. In fact, funny story, uh, today I, we actually, I actually just installed some water sensors. So these are, they're sensors to detect water leaks, you know, and, and of course I bought smart ones. They have like dumb ones that are just, if they sense it, they just blare alarm, you know, from their stuff. But this one does that. And it's also IOT. So you did install the app and you connect the Bluetooth. But the idea is, you know, if something like, hey, a washer dryer leaks or, you know, pipe leaks and the floor gets wet, I'll get an alert from my phone, even if I'm not home. So that's the, I think people want that because of the convenience, right? You're not always going to be home and you want to be alerted. You want to be, you know, I think somebody had a, there was like a really funny video where I recall this was like maybe a couple of years ago where you know, people, somebody had a, a ring doorbell, right? And then there was a delivery package. If they weren't home, what they did was there was a Tesla parked in the right driveway. What they did was they opened the Tesla for the delivery person to put the package in the car. So they remotely opened the door, unlocked the Tesla so that the delivery person can put, put the 
package in the Tesla and then they could lock it. So they turned the Tesla in a doubt into a smart locker using, you know, like the combination of ring to let the person know who it was. And then Tesla to, as a storage was very interesting and fascinating, but something like that wasn't possible many years before, right? Like the person could just, they ring the doorbell a couple of times, nobody's home. So I'm just going to leave the package here and, and risk the possibility of getting it stolen. I think people are willing to, there's, it's not much of a trade, like, you know, that, yeah, of course there's some, some privacy issues and, and stuff, but connecting things to the internet makes it more convenient. So I think people, more and more people want to do it. You know, even the lights in the back, I actually connect them to like, like kind of smart, smart uh, switches. So, so I'm just turning them on and off from my phone now. So now we do have to ask the question, where do you stand on, on, on the privacy? Like we've, we've seen like, for instance, I, I still mock my friends because the beginning of the year when WhatsApp kind of announced that they were changing the, the, the privacy settings, like everybody jumped onto other messaging platforms. And now, and I was of course like, yeah, that's fine. But like we have on a, on a we have a 0.6 population million population in Suriname and we have over 1 million active mobile phones so we have 1.5 active mobile phones per per inhabitant and considering we still have youngsters as well so basically two or more phones per person and everybody uses whatsapp so whatsapp is kind of the main 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 app that's being used here and people were like yeah we're switching over we're now going to use signal and then of course i'm kidding around 6 months later and saying like so how is it going on signal are you still using signal and it was of course for convenience sake but there is of course the issue with with data and how much data is being given now from a marketing perspective i of course love the data the user data because i can target better but from a yeah from more community social perspective it is kind of discomforting how much information you're giving away. So where do you, do you see there's a boundary between what kind of information people are allowed to know from you and what they aren't allowed for, to know from, from you? Yeah, I, I guess my stance on that is a very pragmatic, you know, stance of, of a business owner or, you know, an, an entrepreneur. And there's a, there's a saying, right? I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like, if you aren't paying for the product, you are the product. Like, how do you expect Facebook to host all the photos you've ever uploaded or all the videos that you ever uploaded, you know, that you take, and, you know, everybody and all the private messages between all you and all your friends, like they have a, to operate a business. They are, they're operating, there's real tangible costs of data centers and engineers and, you know, designers, like their whole, I can tell you like, like they're just maybe their iOS mobile design team is probably bigger than my whole company. Right. Like, so that's, those are real hard costs that they have to bear. So like, how do they do that for free? They can't, they can't do this for free. It costs money. So they have to pay for, if you are not paying a member, you know, like, Hey, if you're paying for proton email or, you know, you know, Salesforce CRM and stuff, you're, you're paying for that. Right. So there's, there's a, an exchange in value somehow right? Where you're giving money. So there's an expectation of privacy where here I've no, I use this product absolutely for free. So, you know, I, I look at it as, well, they have to make money somehow. Yeah, no, I do use ProtonMail, but 
I've, I've heard of it. I've seen it around, uh, but I haven't really delved into it. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much the same as it. it it's got to be practical and it's, there's a trade-off always. And you got to decide for yourself which trade-off you want and then you go, go down that path. So I, I want to tie this up uh, real quick, full circle with uh, basically a final question, a final big question. And this is more directed or enabled by you, Shanluk, as your company culture is this way. But as COVID has, you know, forced a lot of people to work remotely and working from a distance, deciding your own times to deliver. I've, I've noticed uh, from your website and the, the background you've done, you guys serve clients internationally. You guys are a, kind of like a, a global team or a spread out team, a remote first. Your team is like, correct me if I'm wrong, like mostly remote working. So did you start? From the start, since 20, 2012, 2011, when you started Impeccable, what was that the philosophy to start remote first before the, all this COVID that shifted all the companies to think that way? Yeah, we were always, well, we started out as hybrid where we, so I, I get a lot of my influence from a company called a Chicago startup called uh, 37 Signals. If you're kind of in the startup space, uh, you know, you might know a project management tool called Basecamp. So anyways, they're one of the, you know, they're, they have an office in, in Chicago, but they are also a very remote culture and they've always kind of talked and been very vocal about hiring remote. When I started Impeccable in the Bay Area, we, we always hired some people remote and then there was also some people in the Bay Area. And for the people in the Bay Area, we had an office that we, we went to. Why we hire remote? Well, one, financially, it just was more feasible because in the Bay Area, I'm competing with like Google and Facebook and stuff. I can't compete on salary like like that. It's just not realistic. So we, we were forced to hire a remote just to be able to get the talent from anywhere. So we, we were remote first from, from the very beginning. Some people were local, but I would say at any point in time, 75 or 80% of our team was always remote. So yeah. So it's always been remote. So we we've when COVID happened, you know, the 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 thing that did change was mostly for me, is we we shut down our office and I I stopped going for to an office. So we we were we went from eighty percent remote to now a hundred percent remote. How difficult was that? How difficult was it to shut down the office? Well, you you know when COVID happened, you couldn't go right. Everything was locked down, and you couldn't go to the office. So we were spending money for an office we weren't using anyways for like three months and then i decided okay this is just wasting money so we we got we're able to get out of it but i think psychologically or emotionally i was probably i was one of the people who probably had the most difficult time shifting a little bit because i always had an office you know i went to an office i got up in the morning got dressed for work drove drove to work had a parking lot and then walk from the parking lot to an office. Whereas 80% of my team, they just got up and worked at their computer. So for me, it was the biggest adjustment of like work, I guess, maybe like work-life boundary because I didn't have, I had a very clear delineation, right? I, I went to an office and then I also like, I was also like the traveling work, the nature of work for me changed because as the CEO slash salesperson of the company. So like for the local Bay area, San Francisco clients, I would, 
it was not unusual for me to drive and go see them. For other clients, obviously, I didn't, you know, that weren't in the Bay Area, obviously, I didn't go see them. But I was used to also commuting, you know, going see clients. So that completely changed. And we had to change how we, you know, attracted new clients or new business. And like, I think the companies that had an advantage, just like the companies that did remote before COVID got, you know, were, were already used to it. The companies that were already great at dig- online marketing, digital marketing, I think did really well in COVID because it's, they were already doing it. For me, I was relying a lot on personal relationships. You know, like, like to me, like if people, you know, Diego, you, you were like impressed by the logos. My, my, I guess my superpower is I'm great at developing relationships and having face-to-face relationships. You know, I would drive and see people. I'm good at that and, and thinking of them and, and having coffee th- with them. So like all that was just blown away, you know, and I had to rethink on how I create new business. You know, I feel like, you know, in some ways my, my, my legs were cut off, you know, like at the knees. So like I was, I was handicapped because, you know, how I was, I was overly relying on, on offline channels and, and face-to-face contact and personal relationships Whereas companies that were digital native and digital online marketing, you know, now, now they had the advantage. And then, you know, I, I had wished that, man, I wish I'd started learning these skills and doing these things sooner because now the world's kind of changed. So a quick follow-up on it. So from a UX perspective, your team was basically already on board on that. So in the early days, how did you kind of, from a U- employee user experience side, how did they, well, what's the feedback you got from them? And was that kind of, you know, you, you drew inspiration from others, but finding these people, or were they already, you know, thinking in that same direction on remote first? And how did you even find these remote employees? What, what What's the feedback you got? Well, I, I think as we were able to attract great customers, I think it, was, it wasn't um, hard for us to attract talent. I think people really enjoy, you know, we attracted the people who really enjoyed, you know, a, a sense of work-life balance that enabled them to work remotely or they wanted to work remotely. So we, we had, we've always attracted kind of the remote first work, remote first workers. What I think what's changed now is everybody, every company is, is remote work, remote first, not by choice. How the, the user experience for us we we always had to we had to be remote from the very beginning remote friendly from the very beginning so the user experience has always been video so like even when we had a meeting in the office you know we we would want to join even if everybody was here we we always create a zoom meeting we always create a google hangout meeting so people could join you know we we use the google tools judicial you know very um diligently so that people could feel people who were remote could feel inclusive stand-ups you know some we we record them so if you're in another time zone you could watch my our all hands to stand up later so we we designed a culture of remote first we do a lot of documentation you know we write things down a lot we use a confluence as our wiki google docs google slides to present and those are always made available to the team so you know in, even if so yeah we we made it so that 
in as much as possible, people felt, you know, included if you're a remote worker. And then pre-COVID, we, what we did was twice a year, we would have a get together. So we, we do value face-to-face relationships, especially, you know, being who I am, I, that's what I value. So we, at some point we started a tradition of like, you know, in the summer, we kind of take sort of a break for the week and we fly everybody in for the week and we hang out. We, we do a lot of team building, we do a lot of eating together, having lots of meals together and fun activities. So we try to do that. We tried to do that pre-pandemic twice, twice a year, you know, summer and winter. That's, that's really cool. Is there anyone on your team that you haven't met personally face to face yet? Oh, now there's a lot because we've also grown. So we've since hired many people since the pandemic. So I, I haven't met many, many of those people. Pre-pandemic, if we hired someone new, one of the things I did was they would spend a week at the Bay Area headquarters. Now, now we have no headquarters, so I don't know what, what we do now post-pandemic, but you know, that, that was one thing that, you know, they, they got to spend time at the, at the office and, you know, we, we put them in a one week Airbnb and to typically we like, you know, the people in the office, we take turns taking them out to lunch. You know, I sometimes take them out to dinner, you know, spend as much time with them as possible as, and to develop those, those face-to-face, you know, real life relationships and build those bonds. I don't have a good answer on how to replicate that, um, during a pandemic of course everybody has to be locked down but i think now that things are opening up and people are starting to get vaccinated in us we can kind of get back to a little bit of that where hey you know we can maybe spend some money to fly people in but i'm not you know with everybody being remote there's no central place to fly now you know that's yeah maybe that's even better because then we can hey let's go there because everybody wants to go but but yeah so the, the question is then how do you find these people like how how does the selection process to work at an impeccable look like yeah we well we we lean we we have a recruiter we we put out job postings that's like one of the first thing is the the hiring manager writes a job description of the the role that they need and then our recruiter will put it out there in various job boards and and they'll kind of be the first gate if you will to filter out and it's actually she deals with a lot. She'll get like, she'll, you know, there might like, by the time that people start interviewing. So I remember one stat where we, our team interviewed like six people. Well, she had to get, she narrowed it down from 60. She had like 60 good candidates that, you know, and the funnel, the top of funnel is even bigger, but then she narrowed it down to six from the 60 from that, you know, maybe 60 was, okay and then from there she she whittled it down to six so that we don't have to deal with the six and then we we have a process an interview process like at least three gates of interviews where you know the who, whoever's hiring will interview and then finally at some point i may get to talk to them but the company is you know at the size where i don't really even by, by the time it gets to me most people they just want me my my approval but we we also reach out to our network we're encouraged to you know if you obviously you know if you know someone good from our team you know we this is an opportunity to to work at impeccable yeah one one great thing that we've we've adopted from from other hiring practices is screening for our culture and our, our culture values so that's not something that we we did before in the early days you know i, I was never 
nobody ever taught me how to hire, but you know, ha having brought on people from from more more who have more experience hiring, we've adopted some really good hiring practices. So so that's something that we we do now is we 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 have questionnaires that that also screen for for cultures, culture fit and stuff like that. That's really really. Uh, elaborate i'd say and the, the rate that you've grown as well even during covid but yeah th there's actually so much more i, I want to follow up on but we, we've hit the hour mark and I, I think it's time we 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 wind it down so to close it off I, i'm gonna leave it at that sean look did you have anything else burning that you wanted to ask i i mean i'm gonna leave gregory up with a, another rough question if i might say so as tech has become more integrated and powerful is there a place for government regulation to get involved or will it ruin the purity of the art well i mean tech is a tool it's not an art right i, I think art when i think when people you know this is the same analogy like what design in my sense solves a problem ux design is not art art is you know you you know, if a designer, if a UX designer has too big an ego and it's uh, it's about their design and their work, they, they don't have a place at Impeccable. Design has to solve a problem for the users, has to solve a problem for the stakeholders, the business that's hiring us. And it's not really about the, the design as created by the designer. You know, there's no place for design, like the ego of the designer. In, in that sense, you know, tech is similar where tech needs to solve a problem and if tech is being a tool that's taking advantage of people in a gray way that like here's uh, i just read something interesting now that's a headline that caught my attention i think a firm bought like an old power plant in new york upstate new york and this was in recent news and they're using that power plant to just mine bitcoin and that is creating so much heat that it's it's heating up the one of the lakes right that's that's actually that that has a negative impact on the environment you know it's to me it's sort of like the equivalent of you know dumping waste into to a lake right you're you're destroying the ecosystem of the lake by by doing that so i think there should be some regulatory thing you know, or, or like, you know, you, maybe you tax that, right? Like there's like a carbon tax because there's carbon emissions, you know, you're, you, you have to tax that. So I think there's, you know, and just like uh, monopolies, right? Like I think now there are monopolies, but it's not clear to the government that they are monopolies. Like before, like those telcos in the U S that were broken up, like baby bell telcos, because it was obvious that it was a mon monopoly now. Not like Google's so big that it's essentially a monopoly, right? Facebook is a monopoly, you know, because they control what's WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, like all the major social networks, right? Like it's still all Facebook. Like Google tracks you even if you have an iPhone because you have some Google app, right? If if you don't have Google Maps, you you have Gmail. If you have Gmail, they're tracking your location, whether you like it or not, right? So if you want, you don't want Google to track you, don't have any Google apps, on it and, and even then if you know you don't have any google apps like maybe you have a consumer app that uses google ads as their advertisement platform so they'll track you anyways so you know so they they essentially have a monopoly on tracking you yeah i think uh yeah can't escape big brother <laughs> can't, can't can't escape you know big 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 co 
and and we're thankful for them because when you drive somewhere and you want to check the traffic, then they also use that. Well, you trade that, right? You trade that convenience. Yeah, right. You trade that because you're not paying for anything, right? So most people are not paying for like. I, 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 there's no way for me to pay for Google Maps. It's like I rather, you know, some people would like, hey, don't track me. I'll pay for it. You can't, right? They want to track you, they, and they'll monetize in other ways. Yeah, there's um, no opt out or opt. There's no no opt out, right? There's no like option to like, hey, let me pay you and don't track me. So, so those companies th- that is their business is is the dealing of data. So it's yeah, at some point it's when it becomes too invasive. I, I think yeah. I guess it, government should do something about it when it's it's too. Yeah, that's that's beyond the point. Of, <laughs> this could go on and forever. This no, uh, I, I think more we'll keep it at that. To talk to, to talk, uh, but this is a really good. Convi- that was a really good co- question. There's so much. Actually, it opened more floodgates, but we'll probably have to do a follow-up somewhere in the future. I'm not sure, but hope you're uh, satisfied with that answer, Greg. Then I guess time to close off. Could you quickly tell us about the two podcasts you have where people can find them and learn more about that? And then one one podcast is a design, a UX design podcast called What is UX? And you can go to whatisux.co. And I, I interview designers, example, like it's designers from Netflix, YouTube, Yelp. So those are great, great conversations to learn more about UX design. And the other one is a founders podcast where I interview startup founders. And that is, yeah, it's called Founders with Peck. You can find it on YouTube is the primary format, but you can also find it on popular podcasts for the audio version on, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and that, that stuff. The U, UX podcast is mostly an audio podcast. There's no YouTube version of that. Awesome. We'll link those in the description as well once we release this episode. Guys, check out Impeccable as well. They do amazing work. And Peck, uh, appreciate it you coming on here with us and just sharing your perspective. I, I think we've definitely learned some actually a lot from the different uh, from coming from thailand and the different asian perspective but also the the work culture that you've cultivated over the years so appreciate that you sharing that with us with that being said guys in the comments thanks for showing up thanks for the questions especially greg and yeah look out for next week and the release of the audio version on the website and all podcasting platforms sean look i guess you have a final word and then you can roll us out as always, get back to us next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Surinamese time, 8, 8 p.m. Eastern time. This was Social Convos. See you back next week. Bye-bye.